This episode is brought to you by the generosity of our listeners. This man kind of wooed me and said, okay, so this is what a man really is. This is what I was missing in a father. Now imagine that at 12 years old and then that man sexually abuses you. That's Joe Martin, award-winning speaker, author, professor, and mentorship leader to men on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Nassadi. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. This is Larry Gates. And Armin Nassadi. We are both a little weakened from our colds, but uh, <laughs> we are here nevertheless in strength looking to inspire you to take your bold idea and, uh, and bring it to life, or maybe to discover how God wants to inspire you in a bold idea. And we have one that uh, might be emerging from this uh, interview yet today on our program, right, Armin? That's right. This man's a, I think he's going to quickly become one of my sought after speakers on this topic that he talks about. Yeah, we have Dr. Joe Martin with us today. He is the educator's educator, one of the country's leading expert on teacher retention, and student motivation issues. He's a visiting professor and educational consultant, lecturing at more than 60 college campuses a year. He's an award-winning speaker, author, professor, and retention expert. And he has authored or co-authored nine books, including Are You the Man? 201 Lessons I Wish My Dad Would Have Taught Me. He's also the host of Real Men Connect with Dr. Joe Martin, the number one rated Pod, radio podcast on iTunes for Christian men. And so we want to welcome to the podcast... Dr. Joe Martin. Thank you for having me on. Oh, so good to so good to have you on. Now, I I was curious about one thing, Joe. Let's start out with this. Your bio describes you as quote a certified man builder. Now, that's the first time I've ever heard certified man builder before. <laughs> so, like, what does that mean? Well, you know what you just uh, revealed, though, Larry. That that's um that's called branding. <laughs> ah, well, as a marketing because guy, you just I know something right about on that. No one has heard of it before. That's why I decided to use it. Ah, There's no you. such thing as a certified um, builder of men. So I figured, why not me? Well, I was just wondering, <laughs> yeah, okay, there you go. I like that. And, you know, as a marketing guy, I, I kind of, you, well, do you know the marketing credo, Joe? What's the marketing credo? Oh, the, Maybe I've heard it before. All right. The marketing credo is you start with the truth and you go from there. So there we go. All right. So I get it. All right. So, you know, one of the books though, you wrote, you've written nine books or co-written nine books, right? And and one of the ones you wrote was about the lessons you wish your dad would have taught you. Tell us about your dad. What was that like for you growing up? Well, what I can tell you about my dad is that he wasn't there. Um, My mom was a teenage mom. She had me at the age of 16 and had my sister at, by the age of 17. So when she was a junior in high school, she had two children. Mm. And my dad um, um, got her pregnant both times. And he decided to do the right thing, even though he pretty much did not really have an interest in marrying her. But he wanted to do the right thing and be a stand-up guy. So he did marry my mom, even though I, we were just babies. But he, after two years, he figured he couldn't handle it anymore. So he just bailed. Um, he left. And so I grew up without a dad in the home um, during most of my childhood. And I didn't really build a connection with my father until I was an adult. And so that book was kind of out of that, but has some other meaning behind that book as well. But that's the extent of my relationship with my dad growing up. Mm. So when, how have you connected with your dad since that time? Well, now my dad and I, we have a relationship. We talk at least maybe every other week, but it's a process. I had to go through forgiving him. And I even asked him to forgive me for the anger that I withheld towards him because he wasn't there when I was growing up. 
because you know, as a child, you're growing up, you don't understand why your dad is not there. And I grew up in a neighborhood in a community where I only knew one person in my neighborhood who had a, a dad in the home, and their family was dysfunctional. Um, his dad sold um, VHS tapes out of his out of his um, trunk, which kind of dates you and tell you how old I am. <laughs> and and his mom was a numbers runner, and so I didn't have a, a great model of what marriage was. Neither did I know what a dad was. And so um, my dad not being there, I had to forgive him for um, a lot of the anger that I held towards him, and I asked him to forgive me. And we built a relationship when I became a young adult. And even when I met him, it was a strained relationship because. My dad is, for lack of a better way of describing it, he pushes very hard, and he's one of those men that he makes it impossible to please him. But I realize now that he was, I thought it because he hated me or something, but I realized later he was doing it to motivate me. He just did it the wrong way. And so after I got past that, I was able to build a relationship with him. And now we're more like friends than a father-son relationship sure. mm -hmm. because I don't really go to him for marital advice or being a father because I do have a Paul a Paul type in my life. That does that for me, but my dad and I—we, I would say, our relationship is even better than my mom. My relationship with my mom right now, unfortunately. Well, so let's put this into context. How long ago was that that you had this uh, for forgiveness experience with your dad? That was um, okay. That was twenty-two years ago. Okay, and you have a family of your own. Yes, I do. I am remarried, um, which that's a whole another story um, because that's kind of the fallout of me not having a dad and not having the right mentorship and role model and not being discipled. But I'm I'm remarried to a, a wonderful woman. Um, we we just celebrated our fifth year anniversary. Um, I have a, a son from my first marriage. She has a daughter from hers, and um, we have a blended family. But now my son is in college, so it's just me, my wife, and my daughter, and our dog Hercules right now. So you are empty nested. <laughs> well, not necessarily because we have my, my teenage daughter who's oh, teenage in high daughter. school. Right. But so I'm counting. But hey, but Larry, Larry, I'm counting down the hours, man. <laughs> She's got it's three a, more years and she's out of here. It's a whole nother world and it's 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 wonderful and, and sad in some other ways. So, hey, but let me ask you this. When you look back now, the 20 years or so since you, you kind of come to terms with, with your dad, and I know that that's an ongoing process, I'm sure. But when you look back at your early life without your dad's presence, what was the, what was the biggest thing that you felt like you were deprived of? Ooh, there's so much. Uh, I will start based on the fact that I minister to men now and I, I work with coaching men, discipling men, mentoring men and helping in coaching the mentors on how to mentor men. I would say the first thing is understanding what a real man is. Um, I didn't have a blueprint. I didn't have a model. I didn't know I didn't have somebody I can look at and say, OK, so that's how you do manhood. So that's how you do um, being um, being a husband. That's how you do being a father. I didn't have that role model or that blueprint on how to do it. And so pretty much I had to figure it out through trial and error. And then when I looked outside in my community, I didn't see it there either. And so you're talking about growing up in a neighborhood where we didn't grow up in a small hood. I mean, my hood was huge. You're talking about five high schools and two malls. And I still never had the right exposure to the right type of man. And because of that, what ended up happening is that the men that did come in my life, the first one who came in my life after I didn't have my dad there, was an older cousin who um, sexually abused me as a child for three years. Mm. And so my introduction to manhood, because this man was the first man to ever tell me that he loved me. And he treated me better than my mom was treating me. And he fed me and he clothed me because my mom had her own issues. And so this man kind of wooed me and said, okay, so this is what a man really is. This is what I was missing in a father. Now imagine that at 12 years old and then that man sexually abuses you. Oh, 
for three years. And now I had a, a, a huge misconception of what a man is. And then I started questioning my own masculinity. And so it sent me down a spiral that really was devastating. Cause I mean, I was suicidal from 12 to 16 years old. Man. Okay, so what got you out of that spiral? <sighs> um, it's, now I look back on it and I see now it was the grace of God. Um, even though God and I had a, a very um, tumultuous relationship because I thought God was punishing me. Because even though I grew up in a very, 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 very bad neighborhood, when I say bad, um, I witnessed six of my friends dying before I reached the age of 16. Ooh. And I had a dozen friends who were doing time in prison. And I have two family members now who are doing time in prison. One is doing a life sentence in prison. So um, this the the impact that this this had on me is just it was devastating. But you say, how did I get out of it? So I thought God was punishing me. And now I look back in hindsight and I see that God was preparing me because he was actually writing my resume. And he, was a, he wasn't trying to tear down my life, but he was actually building it up and strengthening my character. But I still didn't get it yet. But what got me out, basically, you say, out of this situation, I wish I could say it was a good thing other than that it was the grace of God. But I started to overcompensate, thinking, okay, if I can just run fast enough away from my past, maybe it'll never catch up with me again. What did you do to do that? Oh, I just started, um, I started applying myself in um, being an overachiever. When I say overachiever, Larry, I'm talking about on steroids. <laughs> I mean, I was, the, I was the first person in my family to graduate from high school. Okay. And I went off to college, even though I wasn't that smart when I graduated from high school, I graduated a 2.2 GPA. I was able to get into a community college and in my first semester in college taking 17 credits because I'm stupid. <laughs> you don't take that many credits when you're a freshman, but I had a 4.0. And I ended up graduating with honors with my AA degree. And then I got offered academic scholarships after being turned down by at least 30 colleges when I was coming out of high school. And I ended up going to a, a small college, of about 10,000 students, the University of West Florida in Pensacola, Florida. And I graduated early at the age of 20, top of my university class. Um, I was voted student of the year out of 10,000 students on that campus. And I was the only student of color in all of my classes. And I ended up making history in the state of Florida by becoming the youngest professor ever hired to teach in the state of Florida at the age of 24. And I had my doctorate degree before I was 30 years old. And so that's some of the highlights. I can even tell you even more stuff that I achieved. When I say I was an overachiever, all of that was to compensate for my dad leaving me, not having a dad there, being abused, questioning my masculinity, um, trying to prove the world wrong because I felt I didn't even need a man in my life. I wanted to show the world because I actually hated men because I felt you couldn't trust them. So did that, you said you overcompensated or compensated for that. Did I'm assuming by that it didn't satisfy at some point in time, you realized that even all the effort that you put in to excel and overachieve still didn't fill what you were longing for. No, it wasn't enough. You know, now it felt good at the time because you're talking about um, earning over $200,000 before I'm 28 years old. You know, I was able to move my mom out of the projects and move her out. I bought my first house when I was a senior in college. And so it felt good because now, and I got married at the age of 22, felt, man, wow, this is what my American dream was all about. And what I fell into is that trap that a lot of men fall into, and I didn't know it was a trap at the time, is because we start um, pursuing the Asians. You know, I say it was overcompensation, but it's overcompensation by pursuing the Asians. That's, I felt, man, if I get enough education, that's going to make me a man. If I make the right compensation, that's going to make me, make me a man. Mm -hmm. If I have the right occupation, I'm gonna earn the respect of my peers. And if I have the right reputation, where I have enough people, enough women attracted to me and everybody else thinking I'm the man, that will make me a man. Now, the only Asian I didn't pursue was intimidation. 
Because <laughs> some men believe that what makes them a man when other people are, are, are fearing them and they want their respect that way. So to me, that's what I thought. And so when I pursued those things, it seemed good at the time until my marriage started having some stress in it. Because I don't know if you guys are married, but you know that marriage is not all rainbows and unicorns. And so when it comes Never down seen to a unicorn. Deal- <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. So well, but when it comes down to dealing with the stress of marriage, um, when I couldn't deal with the stress and I didn't have a go-to man to go to, I went to what most men go to, which is their medication. And for me, that medication started out to be pornography, and then it became women to a point of obsession with women. Because remember, going back to questioning my masculinity, this was one way to validate me and validate myself. So I became what they call a serial adulterer. And people say, what's a serial adulterer? That's, the, that's when you lose track of the bodies. And because I had that compensation, I was able to get access to places I didn't even know existed in America. And because of that, I blew up a 16-year marriage as a result of it. So it didn't satisfy. Yeah, that's those are tough life lessons. Now, you know, you didn't have someone, as you said, to guide you through all those early formative years when you were trying to figure out what does it mean to be a man. If you were to go back in time now to your younger self, what would you have said to your younger self? Well, the first thing um, I would have said to a little Joe, they used to call, actually used to call me little Joe. <laughs> first, I would tell him, it's not your fault. Um, I, I can't, I, my heart breaks for, they say one out of every six boys um, under the age of 18 have been sexually abused by children, one out of six. And I know both of you guys, are you go to church and that means there's a lot of quiet men who are not telling you their secret. And see, I used to think that I was the only one. And I just thought that, you know, that it was my fault that it was something that I did. So the first thing I would go back and tell little Joe is that, dude, it's not your fault. Um, you didn't do this. And another thing I would tell um, little Joe is that this doesn't define you. Um, you're worth more than you know. And I'll also go back and tell him that you're more powerful than you think because Christ is living in you. And and I didn't understand that. But again, I a, the man in my life should have taught me that. That's what I try to teach my children now by discipling my son and my daughter is letting them realize that don't ever give your power away. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And as Christ lives in you, so now let that dictate your actions, not um, what you think you are, but what he says you are. So I would start, there's a lot of lessons I would teach little Joe, but I would start there by him not blaming himself. Joe, what do you think about this whole uh, Me Too movement that's going on right now, the whole hashtag Me Too? Well, I, I get it, and I haven't been following it closely. I just understand what's going on, and I, I'm not going to get into the uh, the part of you know some people who may be abusing this, and and because I've, I've seen some people get hurt by it. But I believe there should be a Me Too movement for men, particularly, because men are afraid to say, you know what, Me Too, I was abused. Um, Me Too, um, I have some anger management issues. Me Too, I struggle with porn addiction. Um, Me Too, um, I'm questioning my own masculinity. There's a lot of things that men struggle with that they won't confess and admit until another man admits it first. So in a sense, I love what the Me Too movement represents from the standpoint of anything that causes us to be more transparent and authentic, I'm for it. But you know, if we don't use something for the purpose of the thing, we will misuse and abuse the thing. So I've also seen people misuse and abuse it as well. But don't please don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to open up our mouths and open up our hearts. I think um, T.D. Jakes once said that we're as sick as our secrets. And you're asking Larry about what would I go back and tell little Joe? I would tell him that too. Do tell somebody. 
Mm-hmm. Open your mouth. See, I wish I can go back and tell little Joe, tell him, you know, because what would it have done for me as a kid if I would have went to one of my teachers, um, gone to my, my mom or uh, the right man in my life, and I said, you know what, this guy is molesting me. And they said, you know what, Joe, I understand. It. Me too. Man, that would have blessed my socks off because it would have made me realize that God is not just picking on me, that I'm not being punished for something I didn't do or didn't cause to happen to me. What do you think it would take for men to join this Me Too movement? Whew. What it would take, I, I think it's going to take um, the right kind of leader. And I keep it, and I, I say that tongue in cheek because I'm going to be that man to kind of lead it. <laughs> I'm hoping, um, at least in my small circle, of I'm thinking about even naming a group called Me Too Men. Um, and totally, because I'm nervous about using that title because of the connotation that it has in the media right now. But at the same time, I think it would grab attention. But it's going to take someone who's bold enough, a man, a leader, or leaders um, who are bold enough to be authentic and transparent, is not afraid um, to be bold, not afraid to be judged, not afraid to be questioned. And um, if you knew me, if you guys knew me personally, um, I'm one of those people who are not afraid of being judged by man. Um, I'm not afraid of somebody thinking less of me. My first responsibility is to my father in heaven, and I'm willing to do whatever God tells me to do to expand his kingdom here on earth. So I think if men are willing to step up and start caring less of what people thought about them and caring more what the father thinks of them, I think that could um, get this movement moving. So can we expect you to start? Yes, I'm going to try, man. I, I'm, you know, and it's funny because you, you've called me out on this on the air because I haven't expressed this to anyone. Yeah, a little bit of uh, <laughs> maybe the maybe this is the hour. Huh? Yes, <laughs> I, I got, I'm, I'm looking at God now, thinking, God, what, what, why'd you set me up like yeah. this? Why did I, I tell anybody about it? Why yet. did I appear on a podcast called <laughs> yeah, Bold Idea? Tell everybody all. that I'm doing this. But, but I'm telling, it's, I've been putting it in writing. I mean, you won't believe how many hours I've been putting into this idea and this concept. Um, and then, of course, then, then the movement happened. I'm thinking, what are they doing? They're stealing my idea. <laughs> and so, and now, uh-huh. it's, now I'm concerned about the connotation because I want people to know this is separate. This is different because we're talking about coming to your true identity in Christ, and you're your identity, not your behavior. Mm-hmm. And so, it really is not associated with that movement, other than the act of opening your mouth and confessing that you are struggling with something. All right, I want to go back to that because you're a wounded healer in some ways, right? You started your yeah. ministry here out of out of your deep wound from your dad and you're healing others that are experiencing the same kind of wound. Um, but how did you get that passion then to uh, to decide to take what uh, what you were beaten down with, the wounds that you had and and redirect it to ministering to other people? Well, I'm going to give you the shortest version because it's a truly a remarkable story. And this is how I got into ministry, but I'm going to give you a, the uh, ESPN highlight version of it. And I met a man through his son, which was by God's hand was all over it because the way I met him, it never should have happened. But I met a man who brought me down to Miami to speak to um, some kids in my old neighborhood. Now, the strange thing about it, this man was white and I didn't see white people when I was growing up. I didn't meet a white child till I was 12. That's how big our neighborhood, our, our ghetto was. I didn't meet a white child till I was 12 years old. So when I heard about this man who was teaching in my old neighborhood where I never saw white people, and he was teaching at one of the worst schools in our neighborhood, and it was middle school, he invited me to come down to um, speak to his kids. And I was going to be down there for five days, but he let me stay in his house for those five days, and it changed my life. 
because in those five days, I found out later that he, I met his, I met him through his son, but I found out he had seven other children. <laughs> so he had eight kids, five boys, three girls. And I got to live in this home for um, five days with him and his wife and his kids. And I watched for the first time in my life, a real man. Remember I said I didn't have the blueprint before? Mm-hmm. Now I got to see the blueprint. I watched him pray with his daughters and he had me participate. I watched him pray with his sons and he had me participate. Um, he had me come, um, uh, participate in their family devotionals that they had. I sat down at the table with all those children and watched each one thank God for um, uh, for something at that table. And I got to watch him as I went to work and I watched his servant leader on the job, but he was the leader at his home. And he was the most humble man I'd ever met. And because of that, it changed everything for me. And I, and I kept asking myself in my head, what kind of man is this? And when he was taking me back to the airport, he gave me this big old bag full of CDs and DVDs <laughs> about manhood. Because he, you know, like any other speaking engagement, he didn't think he'd ever see me again. But over those five days, God was speaking to me and telling me that this is the man I've been praying for my entire life. And so while he was getting ready to um, drive me off at the airport uh, with tears in my eyes, I asked Howard, I said, Howard, man, I know you have eight kids, but would you adopt just one more? And he broke down crying and he agreed to um, mentor and disciple me. And that was over 15 years ago. Mm. And when about maybe about seven years ago, um, I had asked Howard, um, is there anything I could do to repay him? Anything I could do for you, man? I said, you've changed my life. Because by that time, I was picking up the pieces after my divorce. And when he came into my life and he told me, he said, Joe, you don't owe me anything. But if you want to do one thing for me, he says, do this. Go and make disciples. What I shown you and what I've done for you, please go do it. For others, he said, God has given you a platform all over this country. I want you to do for others what I've done for you. And that inspired me to start looking to doing um, men's ministry. And so my whole ministry is around disciple making and men mentoring other men. And so that's been my focus, that's been my mission. But to answer your question, Howard is the reason why I'm doing all of this. Howard be thy name. Yeah, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Now, you travel all over the world and you speak. uh, You're considered one of the leading experts on new teacher retention and student motivation issues, and you have your doctorate in that area. You've got that broad platform, but you're also pivoting and creating your ministry. Is that right? Absolutely. You you said it perfectly because that's my tent making. That's where I started. And now I'm working, I'm trying to transition into working with men because as I worked in education, um, they're paying me all this money to come in and, quote, fix these schools. And I'm realizing that the problem is in the home. If you can fix that man, you're fixing the family. And that family is going to be transformed when that man is leading in God's order. And so we're not addressing that in the education system. And for some reason, the education system, they hear it and think that's a great idea, but they're more concerned about raising test scores. And so when Howard was telling me about discipling men, I understood because I forgot that he's in education. He works at a school. (laughs) And so he was telling me that that's where he would start. Mm. And so I just thought he was crazy at the time. But now I see it. That's why it took me several years after that to finally give in to say, you know what? Howard is right. I need to be working with men and their families. And so I decided to do that. So I'm still working in the education arena. But I'm trying if it was if if all things were created equal right now, if you gave me a choice, I would not work with another school. I'll be working in um, strictly with men 100 percent of the time. Yeah, so let me ask this question because I've been in men's ministries uh, quite a number of years, actually, myself. And frankly, out of the same wounding you experienced, not nearly to the degree that you had, but but similar wounding that drove my passion as well. Um, what do you see as being the 
biggest barrier or hesitation that men might have to invest in either their own kids or other boys as Howard did for you? Man, I, I think there's several barriers, but the main one, if I had to pick the top one, um, I would say I'll start with pride because in order to change, you have to admit something is wrong. And when, when it comes to our ego, that we're afraid to admit as men that we don't have the answer, that we need help. Think about what it took for me to tell Howard, who I had more education than Howard. I was making more money than Howard. Um, I had a better better reputation than Howard. My occupation was more prestigious than his. But think of it, and he brought me in as the speaker to work with his kids. And to think I and then I had to humble myself and ask that man, hey, dude, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no clue. I'm not even close to being that kind of man that I see you are with your with your wife and with your children. Will you help me? Would you adopt just one more child? Most men are, um, they're, they're unwilling to do that because of their ego and their pride. That gets in the way. I told you, there's several reasons, but to me, that's the main one is admitting that they need help and they can't do it by themselves. And, and that's for a guy who is afraid perhaps to admit his need for a mentor in his life. What about the other way around? What about the mentors and perhaps those that might be disengaged that could be engaged in other people's lives. Yeah, and, and that, that's a pet peeve of mine too, because I, you know it took me forever to find Howard. And then I realized now working in men's ministry full-time, there are a lot of Howards out there. I was, more, I was shocked to see that there's a lot of them out there. But the problem is that they're not engaging the younger generation, the young men. So I'll tell you what it seems to me to be, and, and again, um, I'm still in the middle, kind of I have Timothys and I have some Pauls, and I'm transitioning into being more of a Paul than anything else. But what I'm realizing, what it seems to the older guys is that it's the level of commitment they think it takes to be a Paul. And because soon, if, think about this, if I go to the average man and ask him what I asked Howard, hey, Larry, um, I, I love that you're a great man. I know you have eight kids, would you adopt just one more? The first thing that's gonna come to your mind is thinking, I don't know if I have that kind of time. I don't know if I can commit to something like this, Joe. Um, I don't know if I'm the right man to do it. Yes, I have eight kids, but I don't know if I can teach you what it takes. I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of <laughs> figuring it out myself. So all these are berries I see that Paul's use, I call them excuses, that they use for not building those relationships with younger people. Because I, And I hate to say this because I'm trying to encourage men, to, and I'm, and I'm going to go back to, again, back to the problem why men don't ask for help. And I hate to admit this. I've reached out to some Pauls who've turned me down. They've now they haven't tried to do it in a mean way, but they'll say, um, I, I don't, you know, I'm sorry, I, I just don't have that kind of time and whatever. And now going back to what you said is I said that pride is one of the biggest reasons. To me, there's two levels of pride. One, you have the arrogant pride that tells you, I don't want to admit that I need help. I'm scared to tell you I'm inadequate um, and I don't know what I'm doing. But then you have what I call the fearful pride of being rejected. Mm. Because if I've been rejected by those men, a lot of times men would just shut down and say, I'll never ask another guy again. I never stop asking because I realized that you don't need a bunch of um, Howards. You just need one good one. So now I'm up to six. <laughs> I'm up to six Howards in my life now. But I had to get over my arrogant pride and my fearful pride of fearing rejection. So with those older men, it's more so that they think it's going to require more work than it really does. It doesn't require that much. I mentor several young men, and it doesn't take any additional time than knowing how to do it. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. 
I mean, of course, we love our corporate sponsors, but I really love it when we have an episode that's sponsored by our listeners. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly agree with you. It's the best compliments we ever get is knowing that people are out there that want to invest in this to keep this going. And I think everybody knows, I hope by now, that we are doing this as really as a passion project. Neither of us take any money from it. In fact, it costs us more than we are getting even in sponsorships to put this program out on the air. So every little bit helps. That's right. So if you want to help invest in this and keep this thing going, we'd love to see your support. Just go to boldideapodcast.com forward slash donate. And remember, every donation you make is a tax deductible contribution and comes from the bottom of our heart. A sincere thank you. Now, one of the things that you talk about is about how to raise a maverick. And what do you mean by that? Oh, raising <laughs> raising a maverick. Now, I was actually on a show where they call it raising a maverick. But to me, a maverick is really a real man. It's just, again, it's a branding thing, Larry, <laughs> as far as, as a maverick. But to man, me, it's, it's really <laughs> understanding what a real man is. And I've made it simple, not because I've created it. I've just looked at Jesus Christ as being, to me, the perfect man. And no one if they're a Christian or a believer, would question that. You have non-believers who wouldn't question that Jesus was a remarkable human being. And so what I look at is Jesus' life and say, okay, that's the blueprint of what a real man is. And what I find out is that these Pauls in my life now, they they mirror Jesus. And that's what I'm trying to do for the Timothys that I'm mentoring. And here's what I, I see um, in Jesus that I see in real men, is that they know how to lead their family spiritually. And they reject, and, and what I mean by that, they reject passivity. They are leading their family, they're not being led by their family. They're leading their family. And for us, Jesus, we were Jesus' family. His the his disciples was his family. Anyone who was following him, he considered their family. So he was leading them spiritually. Also, a real man loves and serves others sacrificially. They lo- he loves and serves others sacrificially, which means he accepts and takes care of his responsibilities. He doesn't run away from, he takes care of his responsibilities and he doesn't put himself first. He put other people's needs first before his own. Jesus did that with us. He served and loved us sacrificially. Also, a real man leaves an eternal legacy. He leaves an eternal legacy. He's not a a situational man. He's a generational man. And even if we took Jesus off the table and we just focused on, let's say, Adam and Abraham. Adam, when you think of Adam, you you think of something, you think, man, you blew it for everybody. You know, now we're suffering because of you. But then you look at a man like Abraham, and when you think of Abraham, you think, man, a man of strong faith. But if you keep looking at Abraham, you also realize he was jacked up too. He had his issues. But what do we remember about Abraham was his faith, because that's the legacy that he left behind. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we would not even be doing this show if it wasn't for the legacy that Jesus left behind for us. He did it through his disciples, and they spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. So a real man leads his family spiritually, loves and serves others sacrificially, leaves an eternal legacy. And here's the missing component. And when you just brought it up about the Pauls, is that a real man teaches other men how to do the same. Mm -hmm. He teaches them how to lead his family spiritually. He teaches them how to love others sacrificially. He teaches them how to leave a legacy by saying, follow my example. Jesus did that with his disciples. They got to follow him for three years to watch Jesus in action. So we talking about what would Jesus do? You wouldn't know what Jesus would do unless you're following Jesus to see what he's doing. Yeah, and, and so, even then he'd surprise you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, but the thing is, what we're missing as men is that we have some great men of God out there. 
but they're missing that fourth element of what a real man does. What what think about Howard had eight kids. You would think the last thing he wants to do is take on this black kid and say, I want to bring you into my family and I'm going to teach you how to be a man. Who has time for that? But he realizes the great commission is to go make disciples. And he made sure, he said, Joe, you don't owe me anything. But if you want to do anything for me, go and make disciples. In other words, teach other men what I have taught you. And that was the great commission from Jesus Christ. Yeah, good words from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Absolutely. What is next for you? What's your next bold idea? Maybe we just uncovered it earlier in the show, but uh, (laughs) tell us about it. Well, you brought up the Me Too. Um, I, I'm working on the Me Too Men um, Victory Group because, and boy, I'm hoping I don't get in trouble by saying this. Um, I told you that I, I was a serial adulterer. And what I didn't tell you is that I went through recovery through, for seven years. And most people don't go into recovery groups that long. But I mean, I was doing well probably after, within the first year. But I kept going because I got so much out of the group. And the only reason I stopped going is because I relocated from where I was living to a new city, and when I got to the new city, I started my own groups. But one of the things I say, I hope I don't get in trouble with this, celebrate recovery in um, AA groups and SAA groups and all these addiction recovery groups are awesome. I do recommend them. However, if you've been in like I was for seven years, you start realizing there's some things you would change about some of these recovery groups. And one of the things I would change would be um, how they identify with the addiction. Mm -hmm. Because we have to admit, you know, my name is Joe and I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Hey, Joe, welcome. You know, now I understand that's my addiction, but that's not my identity. I agree. And there's, you'll get into base. They want to kick you out the group if you want to admit mm-hmm. <laughs> that you, and I'm not saying I'm, I didn't do those things. I will own those things, but I'm not going to call myself something that Jesus Christ doesn't call me. Mm-hmm. And so I want to start this group, this Me Too um, men's group that I'm talking about. I want it to be about building up the identity because I've been now sober, quote, sober in air quotes, for over 12 and a half years. Now, most men I know want sobriety. And what I'm telling you, what changed wasn't me white knuckling and thinking, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. It's when I grew in Christ and started understanding and seeing myself the way he sees me. And when I started understanding my identity in Christ, now my behavior started coming out of that. So it's not about behavior modification, but heart transformation. So if you're talking about what would I do next, that's I want to work on that group is what I want to do. And I want to um, start training up guys to lead those type of groups. Now, understand, I'm just a, a nobody guy sitting in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I don't have the resources that are Celebrate Recovery or AA groups and SAA groups that they have. But I'm going to start where I am start recruiting the men that I want to recruit and training them to lead and facilitate these type of groups. Because I truly, truly believe we can truly break the bondage of addiction when we start helping men understand their identity in Christ. So you don't ever have to say, man, I just guess I got to live with this addiction, even though I'm white knuckling and I'm sober for the next. No, you can live in total freedom. Because the word tells us that who the sun sets free is free indeed, mm-hmm. not just from or except for pornography and masturbation, <laughs> you know, except for alcohol or lust. No, he says free indeed from all of it. And that's going to come through our identity in Christ. Amen to that. Boy, no better way to close than just delivering on your bold idea. We're going to be in prayer for you on that, Joe. Thank How you. can our Thank listeners you. learn more about you? Well, if they want to find out more about me, all they have to do is go to realmenconnect.com. That's realmenconnect.com. 
We're a multimedia um, men's ministry, so they can not only go find us on the web, they can download our app. If they go on their Android or iPhone device, just put in Real Men Connect. They can go to our YouTube channel, or we're on Facebook. All you gotta do is just search Real Men Connect and you'll find us, but realmenconnect.com is the best way. And also, by the way, if they go to Real Men Connect, um, they can also, we have, we're gonna have a page set up just for you guys. So we wanna give them some free gifts too as well. Um, one of the books you mentioned about Are You the Man, the 201 lessons we wish um, my father would have taught me, and also the Real Man Spiritual Leader Blueprint. We will make that available as well just for your guests, and I'll give you the page specifically for that, Larry. Oh, that's terrific. Well, we'll include that in the show notes so our listeners Great. can get right there, get all the resources that you're making available to them. Joe, thanks for being on the podcast today. I'm very inspired by by your mission. Um, it's close to my heart, and well, I'm going to be in prayer for that for you and just excited by the bold idea God's placed in your heart. Thank you, Larry. And thank you, Ramin. I appreciate being on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for coming out with the Me Too thing on our podcast. Well, Armin, Dr. Joe Martin, fun to have him on. He's a great communicator. I can tell why his tent-making job is talking Yeah, <laughs> speaking. Yeah, he's he's pretty articulate and certainly uh, a driven guy. Yes. Lots of, lots of ideas. One that uh, perhaps inspired him to move on today, which is kind of funny. <laughs> I like that. I that we got him to actually go with it. He seems very real, very raw, very vulnerable, which is uh, not not the case with people with that kind of background. Yeah, you know, I really enjoyed what he said at the very end about all the addiction recovery groups because it has been one of the critiques I would have of them. I've not been through them myself, so I mean, he's a guy that's experienced them on the inside, but just looking at it from the outside, I do I do struggle, and I think that there's people that would you know, affirm that, no, you got to grab it as your identity before you'll be able to do anything with it. But I just think that that also keeps you stuck in whatever it is that is that addiction identity. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just don't know that that could be healthy. So I, I really yeah. applaud his getting that message out there do and doing too. it in a, in a healthy, what I think is a healthier way to, to deal with that. You know, as I was listening to his story, I mean, I could identify with so many pieces of it, but I also was just brought to uh, an area of personal gratitude. You know, this is one of those things in life where you go, I have similar woundings, but they're not from the same degree of pain yeah. that he went through. And so it just made me kind of a renewed gratif gratification that, you know, there's always people in life that have probably had it worse than you have. Yeah. You know, and as much as we might draw energy from our wounding, there's always people that have probably have deeper wounding. And he described even some of his friends that aren't living anymore some of them who are a lifetime in prison, right. um, you know, and all kinds of issues that people are still stuck in today that are mm -hmm. far worse than anything that we will ever go through. So I don't know, maybe I'm just in the Christmas spirit here, but feeling a real sense of just kind of gratitude for the grace that God's given me with the things that I've had to deal with and feeling in some ways like my faith has been pretty weak in the sense that, you know, my stuff's not nearly as hard as some other people. <laughs> and, you know, I've had my own struggles just keeping up with my own stuff. So I think, you know, the grace of God is there proportionally to our need. But sometimes yeah. I, can, I can feel like, wow, you know, some guys have had to go through much worse stuff than I have. Indeed. You know what, what I find uh, fascinating about this conversation is the whole Me Too thing that came up. And uh, the common denominator that seems to thread all people together is that, weird thing that everyone hates and hides behind which is called shame yeah right and uh and i, I remember in our in our uh former podcast the reinventure me podcast mm -hmm. 
that when you when you talked about shame, that was that was the most transparent I've ever seen you. Right, that was the most vulnerable uh, podcast episode we had was talking about shame. And if there's anything that seems to be consistent uh, 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 in terms of a reason why people hide or don't talk or whatever it might be uh, or don't share, is the, is it's shame it's always shame yeah like 100% of the times so 99% of the time 100% of the times it's always related to shame yeah now joe would describe that or is at least he was saying the reason is pride and i and i think that there's perhaps shame and pride are closely related if not yes. on the flip side of the same coin yes um because uh, i do agree with you i think there's a part of us that wants ourselves to be something that we think that we're not and we're broken and Yes. And there's basically a shame-based component to that that right. is is hard, and it's it's difficult to see that uh, other people are dealing with the same sort of things. I mean, his statistics: what was it, one in six? Yes, uh, men have been abused, um, and uh, that's you know deeply troubling. I, me- I remember one time. I don't know if we talked about this on this podcast, and you know, it's maybe my a little bit um, depleted self right now, and our sickened condition. Both Armin and I are fighting colds here, so we're not <laughs> quite up to speed. But I do remember one group that I had, a men's group, and one of the guys did not want others sharing as intimately as they were about oh, yeah, their yeah. lives. Do we talk about this? Yeah. Just because he didn't want to know the problems that other people had. <laughs> and it, I do feel like there's this sense of safety that we all want to have in our little bubble, you know, that everything is right in the world. Yeah. And maybe some of that is so that it doesn't confront the challenges and pain that we have in our own lives. I don't know. Yeah. It's a comfort thing. It is. a comfort (laughs) thing. Let's just stay comfortable. Let's have comfortable conversations and not change anything. I love status quo. (laughs) Yeah. So I think if there's two things to take out of this episode, at least as far as I look at it, there's, there's two things that I would peel away from it. One is to ask myself, am I, willing to deal with the issues in my life with another person, you know, seeking a mentor, somebody who I can declare the things that are in secret and deal with whatever issue is going on in my life in a transparent and vulnerable way. That's, that's a bold idea right there. That takes a lot of courage to just say, you know what, I've lived with this long enough. I'm now going to take steps to deal with it. Mm. And the second thing is, is maybe I need to look at my life and say, where am I investing in others in a way that's open for them to receive, like Howard did, for them to receive uh, someone that uh, you can pour into, that I could pour into, and just be willing to do that, see both sides of that, because I think we do need that. Otherwise, we live in isolation, and we live in isolation, we live in secrecy, and we live in secrecy, we're we're brought down. Right, and secrecy is, in. uh, so Brene Brown, who is the... uh, probably the foremost thought leader in the whole topic of shame and vulnerability. She says that secrecy is one of the three main ingredients of, uh, shame and it's how, it's how shame kind of perpetuates itself. And then, uh, she said, uh, the antidote to shame is one simple thing. She says, it's just empathy, Mm -hmm. right? Which, which is really interesting because that leads right back to the whole me too thing. She asked the question, what's the two most powerful words a human being in in a struggle could hear? It's me too. Me too. So all all this just kind of loops together in a sense. I I mean, it's, it's a, it's a topic that's been talked about for a long time now, right? Like Brene Brown didn't just hit the scene last year. Yeah. You know, this is, this is years and years old, 
But now it's finally those words are being used in a way that's actually powerful. It's engaging. It's bringing people out. It's it's freeing them. It's well, and it's an interesting thing because it's hard. You know, Harvey Weinstein, who you know was yeah perhaps ground zero for this Me Too movement. Yeah, uh, you know, he's been doing this for a long, long time, mm-hmm. acting out in ways that have been abusive to women um, and and others, perhaps. But uh, at some point in time, it be, it got critical mass. Yeah. You know, there was a there was a tipping point, as Malcolm Gladwell has written about it, right. is is that now all of a sudden it became part of, all right, it's going to rock our social conscience. And um, and I think it's appropriate that that we not hold back as Christians to say, you know, the real answer to this is a me too from this is what God has done for me. Hmm. You know, me too in the grace that I've received for all the sin that I've done and uh, and, and that uh, it's enough to cover anything. And I think that's where the hope is. Yeah. So. Amen. Taz is great, man. I'm really glad we brought uh, Dr. Joe on. I hope to bring him back again. I, I just I just want to hear him talk some more. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad he's making the resources available to our listeners as well for uh, being on the program. So listen, you can get his links to his uh, resources at our show notes at boldideapodcast.com slash five two. There at the very bottom of the page, right, Armin, at the very bottom of the page is a little thing called a comment field. And we'd love <laughs> to get comments about the show. So if me you too. have anything, yeah, me too. <laughs> if you have any comments that you'd like to make about this episode, anything that we might have discussed, do be a me too here. Sound off. Let us know uh, that uh, perhaps something Joe says resonated with you. And we'd love to hear from you. Or call our show line at 612-568-IDEA, 612-568-4332. Well, this is Larry Gates. And Armin Saying until next week, go get them. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.